Dear Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that we get an opportunity to learn from Robert and Carrie. Uh, Lord, just thank you so much for all that they've done together as, as a father and son team. Uh, Lord, and I just thank you so much for what they've done. And Lord, I ask that you shut them up today here, Lord. And I ask that you speak through them, that, that you use them here today, that it uses as an opportunity, that we get an opportunity to learn from them and advance the kingdom of God on the universities here, uh, wherever we're at in, in, this, in America, Lord. And just thank you so much for them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Is this uh, test, test, test? Do we have anything on here? <laughs> testing, testing. There we go. Can you hear me now? All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them. Uh, you can. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter, there we go. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Mark chapter 3, but before we do, I want to jump in. And we've got a, a question for you just to begin with, if we can get that slide up there. Here's a question, a, uh, a not-so-trivial question. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're from the crossings, and by the way, uh, you can kind of, don't, don't shout out the answer because, you know, you've cheated. You've heard this, uh, this, uh, this, this question before, if you remember it from a, a, a series we did called Life After Leaders. But uh, the, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is the most repeated phrase or a derivative of it in the book of Judges. And it's preceded each and every time by what event? It is repeated literally over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And every time that it's repeated, something occurs right before it. Oh, before. before. It is preceded by what event? Okay. Anybody have a clue? Now again, for, for a second, what I want you to think about is we're dealing with a nation of Israel, an entire nation, a group of people, tens of thousands of people that you see this, this thing to where they do well and then all of a sudden you see them crash and they're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord over and over and over and over again. Now remember the Old Testament, the Bible says that everything that was recorded in the Old Testament was recorded for our learning. So whenever you see something like this is going on in the pattern of the book of Judges, you've got to get this down. Because the answer to that question is a trivia, and the answer is really simple. Every time that statement is preceded by the death of a leader. Okay? It's the death of a leader every time. Now, I want to walk you through some of those really quickly here on our screen, and just, just for emphasis. But if you notice, in, in Joshua chapter, uh, and last night as we were dealing with the death of Joshua, that it continues over, the story of Joshua, into the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges. But it's there that we find Joshua's influence is minimized. And Judges 2, 8 to 11 says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So Joshua's there, and as long as Joshua's present, everything is really good. But when he dies, it's a very short period of time before you see the nation do poorly. Now the question is, whenever the nation, and, and if you're familiar at all with Scripture, the Old Testament nation of Israel has a New Testament fulfillment, a New Testament parallel. The Old Testament nation of Israel is a shadow of something in the New Testament. What's, what's, what's the reality? What represents Israel in the New Testament? The church. And really everything in the Old Testament was kind of insignificant other than these are sort of things that we were supposed to learn from. So whenever you see this going on in the Old Testament and you see the nation of Israel doing poorly and a leader dies and it does poorly, it says, listen, as a church, you better be aware of this 
of this pattern. That your church may be doing really well, or specifically here, and again, Carrie's our campus minister. I'm, I'm the senior minister of the church. But when our campus ministry, our church is doing well during our lifetimes, that's meaningful. But there is a real possibility that after I die or after he dies, that everything could fall apart. And you're saying, well, man, that's, that's horrible. Well, it's a reality, and it's a horrible reality that you've got to come to grips with. And that's really what this class is, is all about. So what's the solution to that problem? Well, you find out, in, and we don't have the particular verse that's on here, but it's uh, Judges 3, I think it's verse 8, that the Bible says that God raised up a deliverer for the people. His name was Othniel. Cool thing, he's Aaron's brother. So there's this, this spiritual lineage that's going on. So he raised up a deliverer. And I think that one of the things that you guys need to see, if you're a leader in your campus ministry, especially if you're a campus minister, if you're a minister, if you're a leadership, you're a deliverer of the people. You're somebody that's there. And if you're just, you go, well, I'm, just a, I'm just a member of my church, then you need to see your leadership as deliverers that God has placed in your life to deliver you from this tragedy. So, Othniel, the Bible says... You know, lived and the land had peace for 40 years. An extended period of, of, of prosperity. Good things are happening until Othniel died. Once again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The next thing happens, God raises up a judge named Ehud. Ehud too saved Israel. But in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's the solution? The solution is another leader. God raises up and God provides Gideon for them. Gideon lives and died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father. But notice what it says. No sooner than Gideon had died, the Israelites again prostituted themselves with the Baal. We go on. You got Jair of Gilead led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons. When Jair died, he was buried in Canaan. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was great at reproducing, okay, but not reproducing leaders. I don't know where all his kids are or what they are, but there's this thing that happens. After him, Abdon, son of Hiltal, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon died and he was buried. Again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judges 2, 18-19 says, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them, and they groaned under their oppression and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their father. And Judges ends in the message paraphrased by saying this. At that time, there was no king in Israel. People did whatever they felt like doing. Now, when we talk about the significance of leadership in the nation of Israel, we're looking at a parallel of the significance of leadership within the church. And one of the things I think it's super important that we understand, that God has placed a premium, a value on leadership, and your leadership is so significant, and the judge's leadership was so significant that they could turn not just a campus ministry, not just, uh, not just a, a church, but they could literally turn a nation back to God. 
And so when we talk about leadership and about developing godly leaders, and this is something, you know, I, I was talking, and Carrie and I, it's cool to get to do this with him. If I were doing this, we'd just have, you know, our Bibles open, and, and I probably would not have even prepared a lot of stuff, because this is something that's been an emphasis of mine literally for 25 years. In understanding that if you do not raise up leaders in your campus ministry, any definition of leadership that includes that, that excludes the raising up of leadership, any de definition of successful leadership that doesn't include the reproduction of leadership is a flawed definition. That ultimately, you are not fulfilling the calling that God gives you. You see, you see that in the Old Testament as you look through the book of Judges, this, this need every time a leader is raised up and then dies, they're left with a hole and the people go back to getting themselves into trouble. And as you look in the New Testament, you see some of the similar things. Another question in Acts 20, Paul is uh, getting ready to leave the church and he's getting ready to go travel. And he tells them to be on their guard. And the warning delivered was delivered by Paul was given to help them deal with the problem. What do you think the problem was? If he was why did he tell them they needed to be on their guard? from the leaders themselves were going to come people who were wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay. So to speak, they're going to devour the flock. It was a problem of bad leadership, right? And see, one of the things that we, we tend to forget is that the success of the kingdom, God uses men. And men and the leaders of our church, the success of how we're doing the kingdom often lies on the shoulders of the men who are leading. And Paul's trying to address the problem of bad leadership. He goes on and he says in Acts 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And he says, look, these savage wolves are going to come in and they're going to attack and they're going to draw people away and they're going to kill members of your family, of your, of your church. And see, wolves aren't stupid. Whenever there's, a, whenever there's a shepherd there with a big stick and that shepherd is able to take care of those people and to lead those people in the way that they need to be, the people are much more safe. But what he's saying is, he says, you know, you've got some leaders here who aren't what they need to be and there's going to be a gap when I leave. There's going to be a hole. And the wolves are going to start prancing around. They're going to start saying, hey, Paul's not here anymore. There's a hole in their leadership. And the man that was designed to take this church and to help lead it in, there's going to be a hole in This is going to be our opportunity. And they're waiting for those strong, those strong ones to be gone so they can creep in, just like, they, like Satan did in Judges. And they're waiting for that opportunity to destroy us. And one thing I, I would like to point out is that he says that, that, that men will arise and distort the truth from your own number. Bad leadership will, will raise up naturally. You have to do nothing to have poor leadership take place. Because so much about leadership can be affected by Satan. There's pride. There's the desire for prominence. There's all kinds of impure motives that leaders struggle with. If you guys are a leader, you know what I mean. Mo you know, preachers, we struggle with motive. And, and you know what it is you know, to, with, with somebody who is a, whether it would be a, a preacher who leads a campus minister or a worship leader, it is right for Satan to use pride and impure motives. Poor leadership will rise up because Satan will ensure that it does. Satan will ensure that you have bad leadership in a void. Good leadership never happens without effort. You can be off your guard and have poor leadership happen. It'll only be when you're on guard, when you're very careful that you're going to have good leadership. It's a, there has to be intent in order to raise up good leaders. 
And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see that his whole ministry, his whole paradigm seems to be to help us to avoid this. It, it seems to be that he looked and said, I know that if I'm going to make this, I have to, I have to make some more people like me who are going to be able to step up, who are going to be able to lead, who are going to be able to stand in that gap for my people. And so he, what he does is he comes and he sets down and he, he picks a handful of men. And we're going to talk about the principles that allowed him to develop leaders, that allowed him to be able to make a difference in the lives of, of the first century church. And, and what you're going to get from, from us, and again, for some of you, and some of you know a lot about you know, where we came from, some of you heard it, but Carrie uh, and I, uh, uh, one of my friends, Tim Gill, and I went to school together, and we started a church in Alton about probably 25 years ago now, I'm guessing something like that. I'm not big on dates. Uh, I forget anniversaries and like stuff like that, and I get killed for it, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> But we started church, and, and our goal in the very beginning was that we wanted to, to have a church that would reach people, raise them up for Jesus, and then send them out. And we didn't want to have people that, that we somehow had, you know, that, that just happened to, to move there. There was a church in our area, Mid-County at that time, who was having teams come in that had graduated from different Christian colleges, and they were forming teams and sending them all over the world. And, and there's nothing, that's a good that's a good idea, but it wasn't what we believe God was calling us to do. But instead, we wanted to reach people from the very beginning and train them, people who had no relationship with Jesus, and, and send them out. And so as we, as we were trying to do that, uh, we didn't do it nearly as quickly as we would like. You know, we, we, didn't have, we, we learned a lot of lessons, but the team at the crossings that went out a little over six years ago now, every one of them I got to see baptized into Christ. And out of that team of about 30 people or whatever it was, there were very, very few on there that were second-generation Christians. My son may have been, and daughter may have been the only second-generation Christians that were there, followers of the Lord, who, who, had, who had obeyed what the Bible says about really being a follower, a disciple. And so the Crossing Churches in the functioning and greater all, these principles that we have here, they're what's built the crossings and they are what built greater all. I feel super strong that getting away from them is what threatens where we were, and I believe very strongly that it's what will threaten the crossings uh, as, as we get larger, that we'll get away from these basic principles. So when you look at this stuff, you're going, well, I've had people say, well, where'd you come up with these ideas? You know, and, and they're looking for some brilliant place of insight, and it's like, well, the Bible, that's kind of, you know, it's, let me, well, what book did you read? And I read dozens of books on church growth. But the fundamental principles in everything that we do in the development of leadership, everything that we go on, we go squarely back to the gospel of Jesus and the training methods of Jesus. There's great books, and we go through books in our leadership constantly. We'll read our leadership group of 40 people. We'll read four books a year together, three or four books a year on average. And all we, those are meaningful. But the problem with books is that they can be a little bit trendy sometimes, and you can hop on a cool trend, and it seems really neat for the moment, but the problem is later on you'll find that that trend fizzles out really quickly. And what we believe over the next two days that we're giving you is nine principles of, of, of people development, of leadership development, that are tried and tested, and they are trend-proof. If you do these, no matter where you are, no matter what culture you find yourself in, they're culture-proof because they were delivered by Jesus. <coughs> and obviously you have to find the specific application in your context, but it's not a hard thing to do when you want to know, man, how do I raise up leaders? Again, go back to Jesus, the one whose whole paradigm in ministry was all about developing leaders. It wasn't about drawing a crowd, but it was about developing a leader. 
And because he developed those leaders, things happened. So let's just jump into those nine principles. And we'll give you one, one word for each one. The principle number one is the principle of observation. And the principle of observation is this, is that you need to watch people closely. Now the text that we're going to be coming from, again, as I mentioned earlier, is Mark chapter 3. But for this particular passage, we're going to go back and, and we're going to go uh, into Mark chapter 1. Because in Mark chapter 3, where we're, going to, where, where we're going to kick off, it's at the time when Jesus goes up into a mountain, and the Bible says that he calls those that he wanted, and they came to him. He selected 12, designating them apostles, that he might send them out to preach, that they might have authority to cast out demons. That's the whole nine. Nine of our principles are going to come out of those few verses right there as we, as we talk. So if you have your Bible and you have your notes, something's really easy to remember. But when it says... He went up to a mountain and called those that he wanted. You've got to ask the question, okay, where was he before he went on the mountain? And, 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 and there's, there's a, a great movement right now that has a lot of legitimacy that we need to spend time isolated away from people and we need to time building our relationship with God. And there's no question with, about that at all. That we need to make sure that we are that we are being people who are who are spending time alone with God. But I don't think the best people that we could imitate are people from a few hundred a few hundred years ago, a few centuries ago. But instead, we look at the ministry of Jesus, and he spent a lot of time alone with God. But he also spent a lot of time with people. And here in Mark chapter one, it says, "Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed." We'll see that as a pattern. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they explained, "Everyone's looking for you." Jesus replied, "Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That's why I've come." So he traveled through Gal throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, what you see in Mark in the very beginning is that you've got people that are looking for him, but already Simon is on that personal level with him to where he finds him. He goes, hey, everybody's looking for you. Jesus has not yet selected the men that he is going to raise up for leadership. There is a crowd of people that are around him, and it is wonderful to have a crowd of people. And, but with Jesus, from that crowd of people, he is going to select a core group of people that he's going to to raise up that he's going to develop. And for a number of months, Jesus doesn't put his hand on anybody and say, you're one, of my, you're one of the guys I'm going to train. But instead, he mingles among the crowd, he watches the people, and I believe he's observing the character and their behavior, and their, he's watching how they're relating, I believe, to both the people and to him. And so one of the principles, if you're going to raise up leaders to begin with, is don't, don't do this, don't jump into things quickly. Again, a, a passage, don't be hasty. In, in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 21 and 22, Paul writes to Timothy, a young guy, kind of the campus minister of, uh, of that relationship that was there. And he writes to him, and, and there's this real desire, leadership is so desperately needed that we will, that we will appoint leaders that are not... Leaders, You know what I'm saying? Now, if you grew up in the Church of Christ and you grew up in a rural church, you may have either been a part of a process or watched a process to where you had somebody that said, well, you know, Brother George isn't really coming to church very much. You know, we need to really get him here. What can we do to get him here? And somebody says, well, let's have him teach a class. 
So you got the most unfaithful person in the world. Now you put in in with the responsibility of teaching a class. So he's somebody. But the problem is, and we get an indication that you can be a nobody spiritually and fulfill this, be somebody in, our, in, in leadership. And again, I believe that 95% of or 99% of our problems in church growth go back to church leadership. So Paul writes to this young guy, leadership is desperately needed, but good leadership is desperately needed. Good leadership will allow you to protect the flock. Bad leadership is a threat to the flock. So Paul writes, he says, Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and in Jesus and the elect angels. That's some pretty heavy company there. You know what I mean? He's going, this is, you know, you're not going to read what he says next and go, I, I don't think Paul really is serious about this stuff. But he says, I charge you to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty on the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. Now, I think there's a correlation that goes through there. And, and you look and say, well, what's this partiality and what's, what's going on there in the favoritism thing? What you will naturally do when you get into a ministry is that if you know somebody, you're going to, and if you like somebody, you're going to be partial to them. And because this, this is the network of leadership, why is he a leader? Well, he's a leader because he's a friend of the leader. You ever saw that? This is guarding against political leadership. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, there's some people there that you may know. You may have some friends there. But dude, when you're getting ready to put leadership in place, you've got to make sure that you're not partial and you're not showing favoritism. Because it could be your best friend is your worst enemy when it comes to really developing the church of God. It may be that his character is not what it needs to be, so you invest in him and place him in some position, and then you've got to deal with him while you've got somebody over here who all along, whose character was solid, but didn't have the familiar you know, relationship with you. We know that we're just buddies, but, but this is the person you should have worked on and worked with. This is going to be a significant investment on your part. And the principle of observation says this, don't invest heavily until you have observed and you've researched whether this investment is going to pay off. And it takes incredible objectivity. It takes incredible strength to tell somebody that, listen, I love you a whole bunch, but I love this church more so you're not going to be in this position. And through the years, I've had to tell several people who want, they want leadership bequeathed upon them by the person in charge, which seems to be me in some situations. And I've had to say, listen, there is no gift of leadership that's given in this church or in life. And we are close, and I love you deeply, but... If you're going to be somebody who leads, it will be because your character is solid, not because we're connected through friendship. So the principle of observation, make sure that you watch and you look and you're going, don't, don't, don't be hasty and go, man, I've got this guy, he's a new Christian, he's just going to be great because we have paid a price. That's what I was going to say. We, we've, learned with, <laughs> we've learned this first principle because we've made the mistake too many times. 
And I know in campus ministry, it's very, very easy as a college minister to see someone become a Christian, to see them really be on fire, to be really excited, and to be so excited for them and about them that you're like, all right, come on, you're going to lead a small group, and you jump in. And then, you know, two weeks later, you're like, why did I do that? And it's much, much easier to place someone in that position than it is to remove them from that position. And so it's very important that we look and we say, okay, I need to watch this person's character and realize that it does take uh, insight and it takes strength, but it also takes time to watch those people. I had a conversation with one of my college students recently where he was kind of frustrated because he hasn't been utilized in the ways that he, he desires to be utilized in. And one of the things I had to point out was, well, people are observing you, not just me, but the people in the ministry are observing you. And if you're not, if they're not following you, then they're not liking what they're seeing. And if they're not following you and they're observing you, you're not really leading because you're not influencing them. And I've got to see that by observing you. And so it's really important that we take that time to observe and to see what's going on in the lives of those people before we hastily put them in a position that they're not ready for that's going to damage our ministry. Uh, the second principle is uh, we have to uh, have involve invocation. We have to get God involved. So many times I think about how, uh, how I go about in the past, I've went about picking leaders and again, a lot of times it's how excited I am about the things I see in this person and the things that I desire. And I want desperately for them to do a great job of leading God's kingdom, of developing people and helping people change their lives and reaching others. And I want those things so bad, but I forget to say, hey God, what do you think about this person? And I forget to get him involved in, and prayerfully consider exactly what God would want me to do. And, and Jesus was, that's what Jesus did. He spent this time observing them. He's been traveling around uh, and he's been watching them. But before he, he decides who he's going to follow, he, he gets God involved. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. You see, I'm pretty sure that if Jesus needed to involve God in the conversation of saying, hey, I need to pray before he went that next morning to choose who is going to lead in this ministry, if he needed to involve God, I'm not going to do any better than Jesus did. You know, and I need to sit back and I need to say, you know, I don't know what I need to know, and I'm not as smart as I think I am, and I'm not as wise as I wish I were. God, I need some help being able to look at these men and look at these women and look at these people in my ministry and say, who is going to be the person who's going to be able to step up? Who's going to be able to take care of your people? And so many times I forget that God is a lot wiser than I am, and I try to do things on my own. In James 1.5, uh, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And I need to sit down and I, say, I need to say, God, I want to make sure that I'm making a wise decision with the person that I'm putting in this place. And, and, and I think the thing that kind of drives me to see that or needs to drive us to see the importance of involving God is realizing what's at stake. This is not a, it's not a game. It's not something that we can take lightly. This is people's relationship with God. It's their eternity that, that we're dealing with. It's the ability to help other people have eternal life and have lives here on earth that are going to be blessed. And we've got to sit back and realize the weight of the decisions that we make when we place people in leadership. That's why it says don't be so hasty. And that's why you see Jesus saying, God, all right, I'm going to be in the morning. I'm going to be picking some men. And you see him in prayerful consideration before he does that. And I think about 
uh, in the past the mistakes that I've made when I have been hasty about putting people in the leadership and the price that I've paid for that and the damage that I've seen sometimes done to the people in my ministry because that person was not ready to lead. And it makes me really want to remember, I need to have God involved in this. I need to be praying and I need to be getting his, his, I need to be asking him for the wisdom that it takes in order to put the right person in place so that my people can be, my people and his people, that his people can be taken care of. And we've got to involve God. And, and there's a lot of things that we pray about for you guys. You know, if you think about, you know, as, as college students, singles, I'm guessing there's some things you guys pray about, like your, your grades. Somebody said, as long as there are tests, there will always be prayer in school. And so, you know, you guys pray about your tests. And that's, that may not be the biggest thing. You pray, about find, you pray about finding a mate, right? The older you are as a single, the more that becomes a regular part of your prayer. And, and there are things recently, I want to... Carrie's son, Little Lincoln, that was, was diagnosed or was not diagnosed with any specific thing yet, but we're taking him to a specialist, and one of the doctors mentioned something that's really horrible. They were testing for leukemia. It wasn't leukemia, but the other thing that the doctor mentioned, just in passing, which she should have kept her mouth shut, but she didn't, okay, but uh, it, it was really, it would have been preferable probably to have leukemia or at least, you know, just here. And so instantly, and, and I've not been somebody, prayer is something that, that intense prayer is not my strength. It's something I fight to do. Fasting is super unnatural for me, okay? You know, if, if God, you know, eating, eating, that would have been, that would have been easy. But, but in Scripture, prayer and fasting, you see all through Scripture. But one of the things that's weird, if you look at prayer and fasting, one of the things that's very clearly associated with is the selection of leaders. It's, it's, it's one of the things to where... There's a lot of things I pray about, but it may be that the thing that is most associated with prayer and fasting is with, with leadership development and leadership selection. The laying out of the hands of leaders was the actual selection, saying you're being selected. But before the, the laying out of hands, there was prayer and fasting. So yes, you know, and, and whenever I found that link, I was sick, man, I started fasting one day a week for several weeks there. And you cannot believe how easy it was for me to go without food for 24 or 36 hours. It's not easy for me naturally. I mean, it's really not. You know, you, when I'm fasting, you know, and, and when fasting, whenever you go, why do you fast? Well, when you fast and every time you think of, you know, of, of something that you want to eat, instead of eating, you pray. So I was praying, you know, when I normally fast, I'm praying about every 3.7 seconds, you know. <laughs> Snicker prayers, ice cream prayers, <laughs> you know, all these things. Okay, pray. You know, like, uh, pizza prayers, you know. We got mashed potato prayer, you know, all the things that go together. But with Lincoln, it was, I didn't think about food. And I told Rita, it, it told me how deeply important that was to me and how sometimes the other stuff that I've said matters must not be as important to me. But one of the things in Scripture is that prayer and fasting come in that, in that leadership process. It must matter a ton. And that's one of the things that growing up and watching, uh, watching different churches and things that uh, we've all seen churches hire a minister and they get rid of them pretty quickly or hire a minister and then the church really struggles for a long time. And it's kind of weird the way that we go about hiring ministers in our churches sometimes because we're like, oh, what school did they go to? Oh, that's a good school. That one means that matches our, our way of thinking. Uh, and so we're going to hire that minister, but there's really no observation of what that person is like in life. Whether or not they're living out the things that they say they are, whether or not they have the character that's there, the integrity that's needed in order to lead a church. Whether we look at the wrong things too many times, and that's because we're not getting God involved. When you get God involved, and He helps you to focus on the things that really matter, 
rather than judging off, our, off of our own wisdom and our own standards, we've got to make sure that we're, we're seeking his advice and his guidance on what's taking place. And honestly, campus ministries, you're, the success of your ministry, the succession of your ministry, really hinges on the wisdom that you have in being able to pick out those people and see those that are ready to, 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 to be trained and are as much ready or willing. It's really not a talent issue. It's not a, an ability or an inability. It's an availability issue most of the time. Are they willing to go through this? So here, so far we've, got, we've, got, we've said this, of the nine principles. We said, first of all, you've got the principle of observation. You need to make sure that you know your people. Spend some time with them. Make sure that you're not hasty, but instead you're being very, very proactive and thoughtful. Secondly, the principle of invocation. You pray about it. You know, before you talk to anybody else, and before you talk to, hey, how about you want to be, want to be my intern and, and, and train, before you ever talk with anybody else, talk to God about it and ask him to give you the wisdom, the insight, the depth that you need to be able to make sure that the selection is wise. The third principle is the principle of selection. Jesus handpicked his leaders. He, he, he chose them. Now, 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 I say that, but I want to ask you a question. And by the way, the last passage, if you go back to Luke passage that you read, uh, Luke chapter, is it five in Luke that you read? Uh, that's the parallel account. That's all blended in. It's, this, it's Luke's account of what we're reading in Mark chapter three. It's Luke six. In Luke 6, it's where it proceeds. So it's, it, this, that's all in the same context when he went out and prayed before he called. But did Jesus choose the 12 or did God give them to him? What's the answer? Yes, yes that's the answer. Because Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. There is a selection process. He's choosing it. It's like the basketball game. And you got the whole crowd, you know, and remember in school whenever we used to pick sides, you know, and you before they used to be politically correct and worry about the same kid getting left out 19 times, you know. <laughs> I want to play too. Sorry, you can be a cheerleader. So, uh, but, 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 so, so Jesus is with this crowd, and it's like he's up there going, you, I, I, me, me, me. And, and he's, some people are going, me, me, me. He's going, no, not, not you, you know. Peter, me, no, wrong Peter, you know, you know, wrong guy. Oh, I hate it when that happens. You know, he's left grouping. So there's a selection process that's involved. But also, notice what Jesus says in John 70, verse 6 and 24, when, he, when he's praying that, that, that prayer uh, to, to, to the Father before he's about to leave these guys. Mark 3 is the beginning. John 17 is sort of the, the, the climax and the culmination. But he says, I've received, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now again, what does he say? Those you gave me. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Then verse 24 says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now here's the thing. In that selection process, you've got to choose the people that you're working with. And I'm not simply talking about choosing them in the sense of, of okay, you're, you're in the group. You're on the leadership team. You're within the structure. I'm talking about choosing to make them people that are, are, are important to you. To, we talk about, when we talk about somebody becomes a new Christian, we're trying to get people to disciple them, that you need to make that person your best friend. But in leadership circles also, whenever you decide, okay, their selection process is coming, I need to make sure that I'm not just choosing them, I'm really 
choosing them. And if you can't invest yourself, if you can't choose them in a very personal way, to where you begin to, to, to where it's not just a, a, a structural decision, it's not just a mechanical thing that I need another cog in the wheel, but to where whenever you're about to die, they are on your heart. When you're, when you're about to leave the world, you care for the entire world, but these that you have chosen, you long for them in a way that's greater than anybody else. Paul's writing uh, to the Corinthians, and, and we talk about relationship, not assignment in leadership development. You see, whenever, whenever, whenever somebody, when you choose somebody to be a leader, and if you are maybe in a bigger ministry, maybe that there's some people that decide, hey, we're gonna we're gonna cause this person to, 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 to you know we want this person to raise up. It may be that you're told, okay, you've got to work with them, develop them, and you've got to now somebody's been handed over to you to train, and you're going, well, well, how do I deal with this? I, I didn't really, they were given to me. Well, you have to choose them. Jesus says, Father, you gave me these. But he also indicates very clearly that he chose it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as he writes to the Corinthian church, and he's trying to persuade them to be more than they are. And he persuades them not on the basis of, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and God assigned me to this field. Although later on he will say that's true. That he was assigned, that Peter was assigned the field of the Jews, Paul was assigned the field of the, of the Gentiles. But he sees them more as assignments, more than just a job. It's my job to raise up this guy. He sees it as a relationship. And I think one of the strengths at the crossings that we have is that we have a pretty seamless church between junior high, high school, teen, campus, and adult ministry. And all the leaders know each other, and there really is a deep relationship with each other. And the people that are developing are not like assignees or trainees. They are interns and apprentices, but more than that, they're like our baby brothers and sisters that are growing up. But what Paul says, even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers in Christ. Now, if you read the New American Standard, King James, uh, New King James, they, the, the word guardian is, is translated tutor. And guardian and tutor have sort of changed meaning through the years. But the word tutor is really an accurate translation of the Greek. But originally a tutor was someone who was assigned by a wealthy person. Usually the tutor was a slave or an incredibly trusted servant was assigned the responsibility of guarding the child as they took them to school and made sure that they were being taught. Now understand it was a super significant role and you would never give anybody the role of guardianship or tutorship over your child unless you trusted them completely. But here's the bottom line. It was still an assignment. Who's that kid? Oh, that brat's my master's kid. What are you going to do? I'm going to watch. I'm going to take care of him. Why? Because I'll lose my job if, they, if I don't take... That, wasn't, that, that, that tutoring could be like that. So Paul says, even though I assigned, God assigned me this, really what he's saying is, it's not just an assignment. I chose you guys. And he says, I became your father through the gospel. This is not an assignment. This is a relationship. And the best leaders are built in relationship. I have a couple confessions to make. The first one is that uh, I love Justin Bieber. And it sounds like it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But... Uh, uh, we watched this. We watched that Justin Bieber movie. Bieber movie, all right. And uh, and in the movie, you see that there's this guy that travels around with Justin Bieber, 
and he he like he's he's his bodyguard. But I found out something cool that made me, when he was talking about the tutors that made me think about this. Uh, whenever they first flew to Atlanta to find out if he was going to get a record deal, his mom said, "I'm not coming to Atlanta unless there's a church that we can go to." And the guy that she was talking to said, well, I don't know anything about church, but there's this guy that works at our label. This guy right here knows about church. And so she goes and gets this big, this big black guy. And is like, he knows about church. And so she starts talking to him, and, and uh, he takes him to church. And Justin Bieber's mom said, hey, I'm not signing any deals unless Justin's going to be with this guy all the time. And so the record label told this guy, you're going with Justin Bieber on tour. You don't really have a choice. But the cool thing is that if you watch that movie, which you should, <laughs> if you watch that movie, you actually, you, if you watch those two interact, you realize for this big bodyguard, Justin Bieber is not just an assignment to him. If you watch the way he treats him, it's like he treats him like it's his kid brother. And he made a choice to really love him. Now my second confession is, I very easily get annoyed with people. And this is something I love Juan's in here. Me and Juan joke about this all the time. But Juan's like, I don't know, Carrie, are you sure you want that guy? Because that person is kind of one of those personalities that you get really easily aggravated with. And I think there are people in my life that God has sent to me that he has sent that I need to choose, that I have a difficult time choosing sometimes. And I don't invest in them and, and making that choice the way that I need to make sure it's a relationship and not assignment. And I think Juan and I have been kind of down that road uh, to where Juan used to be an assignment. He used to drive me nuts. <laughs> and he'll tell you I drove him nuts. It was the feeling was mutual. We couldn't stand each other. But uh, but I've watched Juan grow, and I've that's changed. Uh, Juan wasn't going to be able to be here this weekend. I was actually really sad that Juan wasn't going to be able to be here, not because of worship theme things, but my wife said, Carrie, he's going out of town for this. He's got to go to work. He, don't, don't make him feel bad if he can't come. And I didn't want to make Juan feel bad because he couldn't be here. I wanted Juan here because I love Juan, and Juan's not an assignment. Juan is our brother, you know. And uh, I feel bad about the way I treated Juan in the past. And uh, he's not an assignment. And he's somebody that God sent who makes a difference in our ministry. And he's somebody that, as he's grown, the ministry is like, it loving. He's been going through, he and his wife have been going through some difficult stuff, and it just tears the campus ministry apart. And he's not an assignment, he's someone God sent to us who we get to choose to develop. And I know Juan is going gonna, is gonna to be an amazing man of God an amazing father, and he's going to be an amazing man who's going to work in ministry and make a difference. And uh, I don't want to be someone who looks at the people God sends me as an assignment. I want them to be, they want them, I want them to be, I want it to be a relationship, something that I'm able to choose. Something I, that, I, that I look and say, this is important. And God sent this person because this person is able to step up and lead and make a difference. And I choose to love this person and to set aside any of the junk that I might have going on in my mind and be that. And that's a struggle for me. But we have to make sure that it's more than an assignment. That there's a relationship there. We, there has to be that selection that's made. God sends them to us, but we have to choose to develop people. And it's strategic and it's deliberate. But it has to be heartfelt. Uh, we're not uh, the most talented group of people in the world at the crossings. We are very ordinary people, honestly. And we've said there's some things that we can do well, we can love God passionately, and we can love each other passionately. And that the emphasis of that concentration of the greatest love that we have, sometimes we will shower the greatest love 
on the people that are most easy. You know, there's some people that are just so hurt and he just love and serve. But Jesus focused his most intense love on 12 men. It wasn't a woman at the well. It wasn't a blind person. I'm telling you, if you want to imitate the ministry of Jesus, the most intense focus that he has is on those 12. The most intense focus of love is with those 12 guys. And he focuses his love intensely on 12 guys so that an entire world will someday be able to feel his, feel his love. There has to be a deliberate selection. What time is it? Are we through here? Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll stop. Well, let's... let's Okay. Yeah, we can do... Well, let me throw one more. It's just real quick. The, the, you got it? Is yeah. it yours? The next one is uh, reciprocation. They must want to follow. You know, Juan and I joked with each other and we said the feeling was mutual. You know, Juan drove me crazy, I drove Juan crazy. And uh, I could choose Juan, but if the feeling's not mutual, if Juan wouldn't get in line behind me and, and follow, then I couldn't help him and the ministry wouldn't have been blessed like it was. And I've got to see him do that and I've got to see him, you know, change his attitude towards me as well and get in line. And, uh, you know, it says that they desire to follow. Mark 3.13 says Jesus went up on a mountainside and they called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And they made a decision to come follow him. They made a, a decision to get in line. And for some of you out there, you need to realize you may be trying to call someone who doesn't want what, what God wants for their life. Or maybe they haven't seen yet. Or maybe they're not, they're not mature enough yet. But if they're not getting in line and following you, if they don't choose you, they won't listen to you. So you can call them, but if they're not getting in line and following behind you, they're never going to be able to lead in the way that they need to. And so we've got to realize that they have to desire to follow. They have to desire that relationship that they're going to learn. And, and I think even there's times in Scripture where we recognize two people who may be capable of leadership go their different ways. I think it's what happens with Paul and John Mark in the book of Acts where he goes, Dude, you can't, I, can't, I, can't, you, I can't lead unless you're going to follow. And since you're not going to follow, you go do your thing. I'm not going to let you slow me down. And I would encourage you not to waste your time because sometimes there could be somebody, oh, you want it for them so bad. You have got to want to equip. You've got to want to lead, and they have to want to follow. And there's that old Indian word, you got to want to. And if either one of those doesn't apply, if you don't want to lead, you're not going to develop. If they don't want to follow, you're not going to develop. Find somebody who will. And some of you need to make the decision to make the selections, and some of you may need to make that decision to reciprocate. And to do what God wants you to do and to make the choice. For some of you in here, you're right now, you're leading and you need to be learning how to make those selections and being wise and being observant and getting God involved. But some of you need, you're that person that is, that, that leader is waiting for you to reciprocate and want to follow. And some of you need to make the decision that says, I'm going to put all my crap aside and I'm going to do what God wants me to do and I'm going to get in line and I'm going to follow someone who's following Christ so that I'm able to lead. Back to the playground, we've all been there whenever, you know, the guy, they're, they're getting ready to pick up the team and, and you get chosen, you run over and you high five and it's like... And you've also been there when the guy picked you that you didn't want to be there, right? <laughs> right? Who are you in your church, in your ministry? Okay, we'll break. We got what kind of break? Adam? Uh, five minutes, and then we'll get back at 1215. We'll be back at 1215. For the, for the application, application session. Yeah, right here.